We're on message number 44. We are working our way through this beautiful scripture and this picture of we see in ourselves so much in this humanity here. Um, last week on our message, which was called The Heart of Restoration, we examined additional statutes of the law um, and how it was a matter of bringing order into the disobedient lives of the Hebrews, right? We saw the ordinances were assigning really liability and about making restoration in people's lives. And we looked at that was kind of the heart of God about dealing with those that are victimized in the world and God wanted to make restoration. This week, we're going to talk about some more civil ceremonial laws, um, things that are going to strictly with the Israelites, but also how it'll be applicable to us. There's an underlying thread of knowledge or an understanding that we need to gain as we look at this. And this message this morning is called The Way of His Steps. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for today. And we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to be in your house. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. Uh, Lord, it is so rich. It is so beautiful. And the more we read and the more we dig, the more we realize how incredibly intricate the Word of God is and the messages that are so incredibly deep. Thank you for your Word, which is a picture of you. And God, we can learn about you and learn about ourselves as we read it. Lord, I pray that you'll help us now to have ears to hear. Lord, help us not to be hearers only, but Lord, help us to be doers, that our lives will be changed, God. That is our desire today, that you feed us. And Lord, that we not only hear, but we will change. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, as we continue studying, remember that the law is good, and the problem and the thing is that we are not. We are not. You and I are not good. It's not our nature to be good. It's nature, our nature to do bad. So that's why these laws are put in place. They're to actually deal with our sinful nature and our propensity to do things that are wrong. We have a desire to do things wrong, and that's why the law is in place. Exodus 23, verses 1 through 33, we'll be going through today. Verse number 1. Thou shalt not raise a false report, put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. It's saying, look, don't get involved in tailbearing. If other people are telling stories, other people are involved doing things, you need to be careful that you do that. It's a matter of slander, right? Honesty and truth, guess what? Those are character traits of God. And his expectation is that those character traits would be revealed in us, right? Truth is so important to God that, in fact, he uses it as one of the titles of himself, right? Remember in John uh, 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So he says, look, bottom line, he gives a description of himself as truth, right? And we look at that aspect of that. He's referencing here, this is truth, talking about God's word, but it's also talking about honesty. It's talking about truth, right? Proverbs 12, verse 22 says this, lying lips are an abomination, an abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. So when you and I are honest, man, it's a delight to the Lord. When we are dishonest, no matter what it is, whatever white lie or little way that we find our ways to be deceptive, we are actually, it is a, an abomination to God because guess what? God is truth. Jesus always spoke the truth. You and I should always speak the truth. Verse number two says, thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Don't get involved in the crowd. Neither shalt thou speak in the cause to decline after many to rest judgment. Rest means to wrestle. It says, look, you're what's going to happen. You're going to get yourself involved in this group. Don't be out there sharing stories and talking about things that are going to twist the truth of what reality really is. It all comes down to that aspect of speaking evil. Just because of the people doing it, okay, for us to do it. He's saying, look, be careful of this, right? And we think about this. If you and I, I wrote this, if we ever speak 
something we've heard about someone, there are five questions that I, as your pastor, am going to ask you this. Why are you telling me this? What's the point? Second, where did you hear this? And would you give me their names? Third, have you gone to this person to try and help them? Fourth, have you verified this story to be true? And fifth, may I quote you and your sources when I go address it with this person? If you go through those questions in your mind before you share, it might help us to go, you know what? I, I, better for me just not to be involved. I think I'll just stay out of the crowd. I'm going to back out here. Y'all be talking best, but, you know, I'm just going to say, preacher, you know, right? So the point is, the whole gap is that if we ever speak on someone's behalf or before we speak about someone, it should always be It's not about tearing down. Some people, ooh, did you hear? Did you hear? Ooh, did you hear? Ooh, I can't wait to tell you. Right? Ooh, I got hot gossip. Some people are like, tell me, tell me, tell me. I'm <laughs> right? They're hungry for it, man. And it's amazing, but it's not productive. Sometimes it's true. So the whole thing is, if we're going to speak about it, let's make sure we go. Let's talk to them and help them. Verse 3, neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. When countenance here, what it means is be partial. Don't be partial. Just because this man is in need, don't let it sway the way that you see his issue, right? Because these, this is written to the judges, remember? He's saying, look, this is a matter of you having the mindset that justice is blind, right? You can't take into account, well, this guy's poor and this guy's rich. Well, I'm going to side the poor doing what is right. Justice is blind. And what's interesting is if we go across courthouses all across our country, you can see either in the, in the symbols on the buildings or you can see statues in the courthouses. And I actually have a picture of one I'm going to show you. Notice this. Justice, she's blindfolded, right? Justice is blind. It should always be that way. And that's what he's warning here. He says, do not be partial to someone because of their standing, but understand it's a matter of being consistent. Verse 4. If you meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, this animal's broken out of, its, out of its stall, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. Okay? If your jerk of a neighbor has a horse and it gets out and it's walking in your yard instead of being like, yeah, yeah, go and get out of your horse and running it off into the woods, you're supposed to go get the horse. Oh, I hate that guy, but this, uh, come on, horse, right? And your job is to take him back to the stall. Okay? Verse number five. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee. This is your enemy big time, right? He says, lying under his burden. This animal struggling. He says, wouldest, and he says, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. He's saying, bless those that curse you, right? That, hear this. This is an Old Testament phrase, right? He's talking about this. This is Old Testament teaching. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 43, 43 through 30, 44 say this, Jesus himself speaking, Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So people say that God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament deal with humanity in different ways. But I would have you look at this. He says, look, that hate you, guess what you're supposed to do? Do good unto them. It's the exact same heart. It's the exact same God. He is consistent throughout. He is fair and he is loving. Verse 6, thou shalt not rest the judgment of thy poor in his cause. He says, look, you're not to twist things. Everyone is to be treated equally. Equally. God's eyes, everyone is on an equal plane. 
It's a matter of what's right and what's wrong, right? It's a matter of what's right and what's wrong. And that's what it comes down to. This judgment should be absolutely fair and all stands. Acts 10, 34 says this, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't put one person above another. doesn't matter who you are, what your standing is, irrelevant. Uh, Romans 2, verses 11 through 13, For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Not just to hear it, no one, not just know what to do right, but to choose to do right. Verse 7, keep thee far from a false matter. Okay, we remember talked about it. Like, don't, don't get involved. He says, look, you know something's going on. You need to stay out of it. And the innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. He says, look, you get caught up in this mess, and the next thing you know, you've done something to hurt somebody. Guess what? I'm going to hold you accountable. I don't care if you knew what was going on or not, because you knew something was happening. You should not be involved in it. Instead of backing away, you got yourself in the midst of the mess, and you'll be accountable just like they will. Verse 8, And thou shalt take no gift, take no gift, for the gift bind, blindeth the wise and perverteth the words of righteousness. He's talking about bribes. Somebody comes to you and goes, oh, hey, judge, you know, before we get started... I brought you a really nice ham and cheese sandwich. I just got this thing all toasted up. It's nice. I, just, I knew you look hungry there. You just, there you go. Just before, you, you know, before we get started, enjoy that sandwich. I came for me, by the way. Right? What happens when you receive gifts? It can alter the way. So you say, look, be careful that things stay just and then be proper. So don't receive gifts from people because it can change the truth. Verse number nine. Also, thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, seeing you were strangers in the land of Egypt. He's saying, look, People to break. If you don't know them, instead of just being so judgmental, which many times we do, we don't know somebody, we're like, hmm, he doesn't, it's not from around here, right? Instead of having that mindset, look, let's give some grace to people. Because remember, at one point in time, we were strangers, right? Remember what it's like when you come into church, right? And it's your first time and you walk in and you're uncomfortable. And people that are nice to you, people go out of their way to be kind to you, that makes an impact, right? Remember what it's like to a stranger and be kind to others. That's what he's saying. Like, have the mindset of kindness with these individuals. Verse number 10. And six years thou shalt sow thy land and shalt gather in the fruits thereof. Remember we talked about the six years. We talked about the six years or the six years of work and then the one year they were supposed to take off. Verse number 11. But the seventh year thou shalt let it rest and lie still. You're not to farm the land in the seventh year that the poor of thy people may eat. Okay? The poor people are going to come and they're going to eat of what you leave behind. They leave, the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner, thou shalt deal with thy vineyards and with all of thy olive yards. You're supposed to work the land for six years, give it a chance to rest, let the land restore, let those that need it go and eat what's there. And unfortunately, they're not going to do that. But last week we looked in Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, and it gave us very specific instructions on how that was to be done. I want to review those just in 19 says, 20, 19 says, when thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field, so when you harvest your field, you come through and you cut down your grain, and as forgot a sheaf in the field, you leave some behind, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. Don't go get it, leave it behind. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, and that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all thy works of thine hands. Verse 20, when thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. He says, when you knock the, the, the olives off, those that don't fall, leave them. It shall be for the strangers, for the fatherless, and for the widow. Verse 21, when thou gatherest the grapes of the vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterwards. Once you pick everything that's ripe, leave what's there behind. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the, for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt before I commanded thee to do this thing. Remember who it is where you, who it is 
you are and remember who it is or where it is you've come from. Be mindful of the fact that there are people that are in need and don't get caught up in ourselves. So many times we can look at what we, I'm kind of like me and mine, and we can sort of shut our, our hearts off to people that are around us. And the Bible says the love of God, if it's not in you, how in the world can you do that? If the love of God's in you, by burden to help them. And that's a matter of, that's displaying our light and our love to those others. Not only defend the defenseless, but he provides for them as a loving parent. And what's also interesting, I've this before, interesting, it actually talks about managing their livestock. It talks about the animals and actually providing for them. He's trying to teach how to manage what he's going to provide for them. These people have never had ownership. They've never worked land. They've been lives. And he gives them very specific instructions, right? And I mean, you, you can't miss that. He's told them twice, six years, one year rest. Six work, one year rest. Six years, one year rest. And for 490 years, they will have this land when they get it. And for 490 years, they will not take a break one time. They will work the land seven years every, again and again and again and again. They never take a break. They never pretend to take a break. And what will happen is because of their disobedience, right? If you were to take one year out of every six, out of the, the seventh year, 490, that's 70 years. And they will go into the Babylonian captivity. It'll be for 70 years for God to restore the Sabbath that they stole and at the same time teach them, because of their disobedience, to learn to respect God. Verse 12. Six days they shall do thy work, and on the seventh day thou, sh thou shalt rest. And thine ox and thine ass may rest, and the son of thy handmaid and the strangers may be refreshed. He says, look, this day of rest is not just for the owner. This is for everybody. God cares for everyone equally, and he wants the same rest to be for them. It's for the animals. It's for the, 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 for the poorest of the poor. Everyone should get that day of rest. Verse 13. And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect. Be circumspect means to think on these things. Remember. And he says, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. So remember all these precepts, right? But be careful of idolatry. Be careful of idolatry. Be careful. It's the same recurring warning that we see again and again and again and again. The first two commandments of the commandments are about idolatry. God is warning us because he knows our proclivity to get involved in worship. And so worship is, right? It's, yeah. Verse number 14, three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. So the day set aside, verse 15. The feast of unleavened bread, okay? Thou bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month, Abib, which is the first month of the Hebrew calendar. For in it thou camest out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. So we first saw this observed. Remember when we were back in Exodus 12? And when they left, they were rushed out of Egypt. As they rushed out of Egypt, they didn't leaven into the bread. So when they arrived, all they had was unleavened bread. And God said, well, you know what? I'm expecting you to have unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is a picture of righteousness because leaven represents sin, right? So when you see the warnings, it says a little bit of leaven leaveneth the whole lump, right? You put just one little bit of leaven in there, guess what? The whole lump of bread is going to swell up. Same thing with sin, Right? If I've got a little bit of sin in me, guess what? It's going to make the whole thing sinful, right? I can't just, like, you know, how many times do you have to steal to be a thief? Just one time. You don't have to be a thief every day. But once you've stolen one time, guess what? You act categorically, you are a thief. So we must be mindful of who we are. Um, verse number 16, and the feast of harvest, okay? 
the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labor, which thou hast sown in the field, and, so that's the second feast, and the, and the, the other one is the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year when thou hast gathered in thy labor out of the field, okay? So while these are historically feasts that were to be, to be done in celebration, prophetically, they also have a different message behind them as well. Each one is representative of something really neat, talking about what God has in store for humanity. The first one, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. This pictures the Passover, the Passover. It is the offering, right, of the sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. It's pictured here in this Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The second one is the Feast of First Fruits, right? The First Fruits. Guess what? This is a picture of the resurrection of Christ. This is also a picture of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. It's not a coincidence that this right here, it takes place on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, right? If you go into Acts chapter number 2, and you see when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, when they're in the room and the great rushing wind comes, guess what day it is? The day of Pentecost. So this right here, this First Fruits is a of the resurrection, arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost for them. And it takes place the day after the Passover. And then the last one is called the Feast of Ingathering, which is also called the Feast of Tabernacles, if you ever see it listed in the scriptures. This is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about the ingathering, right? At the end of the year, at the end of the time, the gathering. And what it's talking is about is when God gathers the saints together, to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. So these three are shadow images or reflections of what's going to happen in the future. And they're to reverence them in matter of simply preparing their hearts. God is establishing the reverence for himself that is required in order for the people to serve him with the right heart. They've got to learn how to serve him and understand who he is and reverence him. All thy males shall appear before the Lord God. Verse 18, thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. Remember, we just talked about unleavened. Leavened bread represents sin. You're not going to give this atonement of blood sacrifice for the atonement of sin with leavened bread because guess what? Those don't make sense. It is to go with unleavened bread. So he said, and then it says also that it's supposed to be gone by morning. It should be fully accepted. It should be fully, fully um, eradicated or destroyed. Verse 19. The first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. Bring the Lord your very best. And it says, Thou shalt not seethe a kid in his mother's milk. That word seethe means to boil. And what it means, and this, is a, this was a pagan practice that was going on in the, in the land around them, and they would have heard about it. And what they would do was, they would milk from the mother, and they would boil the kid, the, the, the calf, when they killed it, they would boil it in the milk. Reason being, when they were done with it, they used to take the broth, take it out to the land, and they would sprinkle it on the soil, and it was supposed to bless the harvest. It was a pagan practice, and God's going, look, don't, I don't, don't get involved in any part of this. Do not fall prey to the things that you've heard. Verse 20, behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way, and prepared. For he will not pardon your transgressions, by my name is in him. Verse 22, but if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, me unto thine enemies and unto thine adversaries. For mine angel shall go before thee. And the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Notice that angel. That's a capitalized angel. 
That angel right there we see there, that is a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ. That is Christ arriving on the earth before the New Testament. When he arrives in the New Testament, this is him showing up in the Old Testament. And let's look at some of the evidence of that right here, okay? I've got seven things here that are going to give us an indication of who this angel is. It says this angel goes before, right? As the author of our faith, as we run the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. This angel is the one who will keep us in the way. Hebrews 13, verses 5 through 6. This angel is the one who will bring us into the place which he has prepared for us. John 14, verses 1 through 3. This angel is the one who must be, must be beware. We must beware. Galatians 6, 7. This angel is the one whose voice we must obey. John 14, 15. This angel is the one who must, we must not provoke. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. And number seven, this angel is the one who is an enemy to our enemies and an adversary unto our adversaries. Guys, when you go to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, it doesn't say that you need to be prepared to fight. That whole armor of God, and it says doing all to stand, to stand. Because what? The fight's already been won. God's already fought the battle. He's already taken care of things. He says all you need to do is, is to stand and doing all to stand, right? To stand, man. Because the selfless sacrifice we, he, afforded, he afforded us the opportunity to live in victory. Amen. Guys, we're given an opportunity to live in victory every single day, yet most of us don't. Most of us live defeated. We allow the devil to kick us to the curb and knock us down. And we feel defeated and overwhelmed so many times because of our circumstances. Because we lose sight of the fact that the victory's already been won. It's already been won. And he says, you wear that armor not to go fight, but just to stand. That's all I expect of you because I will fight for you. I will handle. I will face you. He says, I'll be an enemy under your enemies and an adversary under your adversaries. Who is the adversary? And there's no doubt about it, man. We know who he is and we know who he's hunting. It's us. It's us. And yet we live defeated. Let's remember whose we are. And let's live like it. Verse 24. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods. Listen to the same, same message again and again and again. Don't. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. He says, look, you're not to accept it in any way, shape, or form. Not in any package, not in any form. You're not allowed. Don't allow this thing to exist. These destructive things, if you allow them in your life, guess what they will do? They will drag you down. Whatever, whatever idolatry you have, I don't care what it is. If it's your kids, if it's, you, if it's your own personal image, if it's whatever it is you've got that you think is so important, that you're so focused on, what it does is it draws you away from God. He's saying, look, I'm telling you, don't allow it in your life. And if it's there, destroy it. Break it down and eliminate it. Because if you don't, it will draw you away. Guys, these Israelites are a picture of the individual believer. They're a picture of us. And the reason why God keeps warning again and again and again about this it's because we have to be wary of idolatry. Yes. By our nature, we love it. Mm. By our nature, we're drawn to it. And when we're right with God, the devil can throw something in our view and we'll be like, ooh, do you see that? It's amazing. When we're right with God and we start to get a little bit of confidence in our walk, get ready. Yep. Because as soon as you start to become content in your Christian walk, 
He's going to throw something in the world. Because what happens with contentment in your spiritual life is discontentment in the material world. And the material world is what's going to draw us. And that's where idolatry lives, is in the material world. And we are easily drawn to it because our eyes, our eyes, man, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He says, and you shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. He says, look, I will bless your faithfulness. Verse 26, there shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in, the, in thy land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. He says, look, all the births are going to be successful, and everybody's going to be fertile. Man, beast, everybody. This is going to be, woohoo, gangbusters, man. And he says, also, you're going to live a nice long life, right? Reason being, God's preparing them because he's going to build their numbers and strengthen them for what's ahead, right? Very, very specific. Verse 27, I will send my fear before thee. Listen to this. I will send, thy, send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come, and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. He says, look, I am going to make these people afraid of you. I'm going to deal in their minds. I'm going to go ahead and start dealing with them here and start driving them out of the land just because of the things that they hear. Their minds are going to be used against them as a weapon. Then check this out. Verse number 29. I will not drive them. Oh no, verse number 28. And I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites. So a portion of them, God's actually going to use nature itself and the animals and creatures to drive them out of the land. He's doing different ways to move them out in preparation for the arrival of the Israelites. I will not drive them out before from I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate. He says, look, I'm not going to drive them all out at once. What's going to happen is little by little, I'm going to get them out of here, and they're going to be able to sort of take care of things, because if the land is unkept, it's going to become unruly, and also the animals in the area will become out of control. And he says, and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. So the Lord's got a schedule and a timetable for them so they understand what's going on. And he says, verse 30, by little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased. He says, look, to give you time to develop in your numbers and get everything in place, I'm going to move them out little by little. And then it says here, until thou be increased and inherit the land. So the transition will be orderly and perfectly timed by God. He's got it all worked out. He's saying, look, you just need to trust me. I got a plan for this whole thing. There, I know, it's, I know right now there's all those people living there, but I'm already going to start dealing with their hearts, dealing with their minds, and I'm going to start shifting them out of the land in preparation for your turn, and I'm also going to start building your numbers. Then he gives them some, some dimensional size of their land. I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even to the Sea of the Philistines. These are the boundaries they'll live within. And from the desert unto the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. This promise from God, man. He says, look, this is what's going to take place. And guess what? That's a great promise. It's an amazing promise. And if they'll just hold on to it, but guess what? About 11 months from now, they're going to be standing at the borders of the promised land. And they're going to send 12 spies in. And 12 of those spies are going to come back after being there for 40 days. And of those spies, 10 of them are going to go, big trouble. They're giants. It's dangerous. We'll never succeed. They're going to kill us. And what? Joshua and Caleb, we can do this. Let's trust in the Lord. Let's go it. And, they're, and they, this, is what they, this is their response. Numbers 14, verses 2 through 4. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation, the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. Couldn't we just died there? Or would God we had died in the wilderness. Couldn't we just died in the wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land? We've gone all this way to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey. Were it not better for us? to return into Egypt? Can we just go back? Verse number four. And they said one to another, let us make a captain. We need a new leader, guys. 
this guy ain't working out. We need a new leader because you know what we need to do? Let us return into Egypt. All those promises. This is the third time God's given the promise he's going to provide the land. He's told them, look, if you'll go there and you'll just do what I tell you, be faithful, I'll provide the land. That's their response. And guess what waits for them in Egypt if they were to go back? Idolatry. False gods. Bondage. Verse 32. Thou shalt make no covenant with them nor with their gods. So when you go into this land, and there will be some remnants there, don't start incorporating their life into your life. Don't incorporate their gods into your life. It's dangerous. Verse 33, Thou shalt not dwell, they shall not dwell in thy land. They, none of them can be allowed to stay, lest they make thee sin against me. They will influence you. You think you're going to influence people and draw them to God. And many times you put yourself in a culture or in a situation where people are godless, guess what they'll do? They will draw you away from God. Because of our tendency to evil, we're easily drawn away. And you put people in your life that have influence on you, guess what they will do? They will draw you away. Well, I'm going to be that one. I'm going to be that one. Good luck with that. Can you be an influence? Can you reach out to them? Yes. But should you partake in what they do and sit with them at the bar, you know, get a brew and sit there? Man, let's talk about Jesus, brother. Whew. God is good. Yes, he is. Oh, yeah. It ain't going to work, man. They need to see a difference in you. You're to be a peculiar person. You should stand out from them. They need to see something in you that they don't have, which is the peace and the love of God. Mm -hmm. And they see that compassion you have for someone else, and they see this contentment in your life. That's what influences them, not the fact that you look just like they do. What's the point? So the whole aspect of this is God simply saying, look, let me teach you to come away from them, because listen to this last part. He says, for if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. That's a trap. He says, if you allow it in your life, it will be a trap and you will fall. You will fall. We've got to be careful. The biggest stumbling block for humanity is idolatry and the form of serving self. 2 Timothy 2, verses, uh, three, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 says this. Says, it says, they will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. This is talking about us today. This is the Laodicean church age. This is what we are living with right now because this talks about in the last days. That's where we are. They will be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God and having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. They have a form of godliness. You can go to church and you can worship. Man, everybody will raise their hands. Woo! Man, worship is amazing. Emotional response. Everybody's like, yeah! And they go out to their car. There's no difference in their heart. They're not impacted by the gospel. They heard a message that just simply fed their flesh, and they walk out of there, and they're just exactly the same as they were before. The Bible says that it's for reproof and correction. That means it should redirect our lives and help us to be more godly. That's the desire of the word is to make us more godly. Yes. Now, so I was talking deeper, 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 that song. I was like, man, that's what he wants. He wants us to understand who he is. And the more we understand who he is, the more we understand who we are. But when you compare yourself to a holy God, you realize how unholy you are. Amen. If you're going to look at your neighbor and compare how holy you are, boy, you might make yourself feel pretty good. Compared to him, man, I'm killing it. Right? Well, compared to Jesus, oh, man, I am terrible. I'm lame. I'm worse than lame. Right? And it's the thing. Is what's our standard? How do we live? Right? Knowing this about humanity, God established the law to help corral our selfish desires and our endless quest for self-fulfillment. We every day, how can I feed me? How's my day going to be? What am I going to get from church when I go? Guess what? We don't come here just to get. We're supposed to come here to give. This is supposed to be worship. Worship means we're lifting up to God. He's the audience of this service, not you. Amen. 
I'm not here to serve you. I'm not serve her, to serve him. Amen. As a residue, if you receive something, great. But you know what? In the end, if he's pleased and all y'all hate me, I don't care. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Because if he's pleased, he calls me to do what I do, not you. I want you to know the truth of who He is and what He can do in your life. And if you'll surrender, what He can change, man. Because we're always sold this bill of goods in this world and we accept it as truth, but it's not truth, man. The real truth is there. The real truth is here. And if what you believe doesn't line up with this Word, then it's not true, man. It's a lie. No matter how He packages it, no matter how He sells it to you. Angel of light, the devil appears as two things, a roaring lion or an angel of light, and he can lure you with an angel of light, man. He can make things look so good and so convincing. There are people you will meet that you believe are godly people, and they are straight out of hell because they've learned how to play the game. And the devil works through religion to twist the truth and hide people from this very word. All these laws are grounded in the same principle, directing God's people to the same end, righteousness. Holiness, righteousness, holiness, godliness. He wants us to mimic him in the way we live our lives, right? And who is our example of righteousness in the church age? It's Jesus. Jesus is our example, man. Human righteousness, guess what it appears as? It appears as, as light. It also appears as truth. That light is the things that we do, right? The light that we have. Christ is the light, but you know what? Guess what? Our, our actions, our attitudes, the things we do, they're light into this world. And truth is honesty. Psalm 43.3 says this, O send out thy light and thy truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me on the holy hill unto thy tabernacles. Jesus told us that he was, who was the light in John 9.5. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12.46, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Jesus is the light. He's the example for us, right? He's that light. John 10, 25, Jesus answered and said, I told you and believe you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. The works, right? The works. Works are a manifestation of God's love. It's a picture of God's love when we do the works of the Lord with the Lord's heart. Now, so are, we, are, works, are our works related to our salvation? No. They're not. But you know, there's a lot of people that teach falsely that they are. Right? And it comes from a section of verse here, a script section of scripture, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. James 2, this is important to cover this. James 2, verses 17 through 24. A lot of false teaching comes out of this scripture. People believe that works are related to salvation. Even so, he says here, even so faith is, is if it, if it, this is, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. It's talking about standing alone, this, this simple, just, just believing. Yea, verse 18, yea, a man say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. He says, you say you believe, but guess what? There's no evidence in your life. You claim to be a Christian, but when I look at your life, guess what? There's nothing in your life that appears Christian-like. But I don't have to necessarily go around and say, I'm a Christian, but I can live my life and the love of the Lord can show out of me. And guess what? My actions will reveal my faith. Verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. He says, look, yeah, you believe in God. You say you believe. That's great. That's great. 
But guess what? That doesn't mean you're a Christian because the devil himself believes in God. But guess what? He's never surrendered his will to God, which means his actions have not changed. He's still demonic and evil in the way that he thinks. If you still live the way that you live, guess what? I don't care what you say about what you've prayed and what you've done. Guess what? You are lost because if there's not a change in your life, you are not a Christian. God, when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, he changes you. The Bible says you are a new creature. If you are doing the exact same things and you feel exactly the same way about things you did before, you're not saved. Biblically, you're not saved. It says, but wilt thou, O vain man, you think so much of yourself, that faith without works is dead? It says real faith is displayed in life. Verse number 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Wasn't Abraham's faith a display? Wasn't it on display on the mountain when he did what he did? His salvation, is not, his, his, his belief was founded or, or, or fortified in what he did through his actions. Verse 22, seest thou how faith wrought with, with, with his works, and by works his, was made, his faith made perfect. He said, look, the whole point of the reason why God did what he did with Isaac was to show Isaac what his faith had become. God knew what he was going to do. And when he stayed his hand from, 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 give, from killing Isaac, what he was doing is saying, look, Abraham, realize how far you've come. Look at where you've come. And Abraham saw, and it was by faith, but it was that action that allowed him to be fortified. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed, it was credited him, unto him for righteousness. And he, show, and he was called the friend of God. His display of faith increased his faith. Ye see, verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. He's saying, look, true faith, it shows up in your life. Not just you saying you believe, but what you do, the way you live, the choices you make, that displays your faith. So it's a matter of this. We're not saved by our works, but they are evidence of the fact that our faith is real. Speaking about identifying Christians, Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 20, Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Right? You can look at their life and you can see who they are. As Pilate asked, and so then we think about that's light, so then we think about what's truth, right? Pilate asked this question in John 8, 38. He says, what is truth? In the garden the night before Jesus was, was to die, guess what? He goes to the Lord, he goes to the Father, and in praying, he says this, Sanctify them through, through thy truth, thy word is truth. Right? And who is the word? John 1, 1 through 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus, right? Psalm 85, 11 through 13, check this out. Verse 11 says this, truth shall spring out of the earth. Man, right? Humanity is made from the dust of the earth. Truth, Jesus Christ, will spring up, spring up out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Verse 12, yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Verse 13, righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. He will live an example. His truth will be a picture for us to follow. He's the example. The law gives the boundaries for humanity and allows us to, to start to learn how it is we are to walk in his steps and the ways of his steps. Because what? Jesus never broke the law. The laws that we see, all the requirements, all of these things, he did not break the law in any way, shape, or form. You and I are never going to reach that point. You're always going to mess up. We're always going to be a bunch of, of misfits when it comes to that. But 1 Peter 4, 1, verses 14 through 16 says this. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. So as obedient children, that's us, not fashioning yourselves, not living your life according to the former lusts, the way you used to live in your ignorance because you didn't know the truth, 
So we were children of disobedience, as Ephesians 2, 2 talks about. We used to live according to the world. Verse 15 says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Man, that sounds so simple. Just be holy. Well, good. Now I know. Just be holy. Let me go do that. All of us know it's not that easy, is it? Because guess what? We live in our emotions. We live in our flesh. We live in circumstance and we get overwhelmed. And because we're not so focused on the word and we're not walking with the Lord, many times these things have great influence over us, right? So what do we do? How do we, how do we address it, right? The best thing we can do is follow an example. That's great. You ever learned how to do something from watching somebody else? Right? You want to learn how to work on our cars? Somebody can tell you over the phone, okay, take off the distributor cap, take off this wire, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, okay, you got all that? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, sure. What's the distributor cap? Hmm. Right? Somebody can tell you about it, but it's a lot easier if the mechanic came in and he was like, dude, just watch. Dun, 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 dun. This is the distributor. This is where it comes. And if they do it, if they do it right before you, right? And you can follow an example, a step by step. Well, guess what? David, King David said this when he prayed in Psalm 119, verse 34. Give me understanding. He says, look, I want to learn how to do this. Give me understanding, Lord. Help me understand. And I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Lord, help me to understand. God, help me to read in your word and show me how it is I'm supposed to live. Help me to fulfill it, and I shall keep thy law. Our daily prayer must be for God to give, an, give us an understanding of, first of all, who he is. Very important. And then also who we really are. Not who we portray ourselves to be. Not who we try to convince people that we are, but who we really are. We look into the law of liberty and we reflect back and we compare ourselves to God and we realize where we're failing. Then we can start to make some changes in us, right? If we're going to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and his holiness, there's only one place that you can gain that insight. And it's in this book, right? It is the word of God. It is the truth, man. You've got to spend time in this word. If you're not spending time in this word, you are cheating yourself. You will never succeed as a Christian. You are starving yourself spiritually and you cannot go out into this fight, into this battle and deal with this enemy who is very well fortified and feeds himself with evil all day long and go out and try to fight a spiritual battle being spiritually starved. You will not succeed. You've got to spend time in it. And you go, I don't know how, I don't know how. Guess what? It's time to just be honest with ourselves, to be honest with God. And if you say, look, you know what? I'm weak in the word. How do you get better at doing something? You just do it, man. You just do it. You don't know how to jump rope. Well, go out there and just beat your ankles up for a while, man. Just tear them up. Eventually, you're going to miss. And you're like, ah, that was good. Ah. And the pain will get you to miss. And after a while, you know what? You'll learn how to jump rope. But if you go, ah, never going to get this. You'll never learn to jump rope. I still can't jump rope. I'm just saying I haven't practiced. But, <laughs> but bottom line is if we give up, we'll never succeed. You go, well, I'm not good at reading the Word. Well, guess what? Put time into it. Put some effort into it. Go and do the best that you can. Get an advisor, someone that can work with you. Get into discipleship. You go, look, I don't understand. Great. Have someone walk with you and teach you how to do it because God wants you to know the truth. He's given us this book with all the details and everything in it, and it's revealed in Scripture. Because guess what? When we get honest with ourselves and we get honest with God, then we have this ability, Right? And through this word and through the knowledge that God will give us, he will enable us and he will give us the things that we need to walk, right? To walk in the way of his steps. If you want to follow examples 
of someone. You have to know that one that you're going to follow. You have to follow the example because you know what they've done. You don't know the word. Good luck following Jesus. Because you have a misconception. Because based upon what you think or believe he is. But let me tell you, when you learn who the real Jesus is, buddy, I'm telling you what, it'll change you. It'll change the way you walk. It'll change the way you think. It'll change the way you deal with adversity because life is full of it. And it's going to be thrown at you all the time. And until you surrender to that word and you surrender to that will of God, you don't have a chance. You will not succeed. I'm just telling you. You'll be successful at some point, but you'll never reach the abundant life that God has for you. There's something called the grace of life. The grace of life. That's when you reach a point in time where you're so close with God that all the sense of discontentment and frustration and anger and pain and all this stuff that's always in our lives at some level, we push it away, but it's always pushing in and pushing away and pushing in. You reach a point when you reach the grace of life, there's no pressure. You don't feel it. It's just gone because you know what? God says, here we are. And God's like this. I got it. I got it. Uh -uh. I got it. You surrender to me. I'll take it all. And all of it's pushing on him. And he's like, not a problem. I got it. But until then, we are on the ground like this, dealing with ourselves. Ah, ah. When you give it to him, he steps in for you, man. He defends you. He fights for you. He says that your adversary will be his adversary. Amen. Right? Yes. The enemy that we're worried about that's trying to destroy us, he says, look, I'll fight him for you. I'll deal with it. Every day I'll deal with him. Every day. He says, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I'll drive him away. But because we're so full of ourselves and we're so unwilling to turn to God, we take the burden upon ourselves and we struggle day by day and we complain, why isn't God doing this? And why isn't God doing this? And why isn't God doing this? And God's going, look, I would if you'd let me. Yep. We need to let him. That's what it means to submit. That's what it means to surrender. That's what it means to spend time in his word. And not just to read it to go, ah, da, 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 da. no, read it and let it impact you. Let it change you. And then when you read it, instead of closing it, forget what you just read, walk away going, you know what? I'm going to apply this. This is now a part of me. And every day, I'm going to work to do it. I may not be good at it in the beginning, but the more I do it, the better I'll get. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today and your blessings, God. We thank you for your word. And Lord, as we've walked uh, through uh, the law and God seen so many of the things that you've warned us about and the main thing, God, being idolatry. And Lord, help us to be careful. Put it into our lives, not make it a part of the thing that we accept, not in any form, Lord. We're to tear it down. We're to destroy it. And uh, Lord, help us to recognize idolatry in our lives, whatever it may be, Lord, and help us to repent of it. Lord, help us to walk away from it. And help us, Lord, to be submissive to the will that you have for us. God, because if we do, it is so beautiful. It is so fulfilling. It is so incredible to walk in the grace of life. God, in my life, I've experienced it, and I'm experiencing it now, God, and I praise you for that. It is incredible, and I wish it for every person in this room. That, Lord, they experience that grace, and that you use their life as a love letter to yourself. That, God, we love you. And let our lives reflect it in the light of who we are and the things that we do. And Lord, the truth that comes out of our mouth, which is the word of God, with honesty, with love, with compassion. 
Help us to be children of God, not children of this world. Every day we face this challenge, God, but I pray that you help us to submit our hearts to you, that you might use us. With their heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you're here today, you're online, you're in the overflow, wherever you are, and you say, you know what? I want that grace. I want that relationship with God. I desire it. I know the weight you're talking about. I know the things you're talking about. I know the adversity that I feel on the outside. I know those things and those tormenting aspects that are after me every day. But I want that grace. If you're a child of God, it is accessible to you. You need nothing, need nothing but surrender to God. But if you are not a child of God, it is not accessible to you because you must be His. He will fight for you. He will reach out to you, but you have got to surrender your will to His. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, I am not a child of God. I believe in God like we talked about it. Believing is great. But if there's not been a change in your life, if God has not changed you from the inside out, then you're not His. Because you have the Holy Spirit of God as a believer inside of you and it changes us. The Bible says we are a new creature. And wherever you are, it doesn't take a preacher, it doesn't take anything special, it's not a ceremony. It's nothing more than a heart of repentance. If we're broken and we say, you know what, I want to receive Christ I want to have that relationship. It is as simple as a prayer, not the words of the prayer, not ceremonially speaking or anything else, but it's a matter of the heart. The Bible says, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. Meaning you need to pray, and if you pray and you mean it in your heart, not in word, but in intent, and you desire it, God will save you, and he will give you that grace that is making available to you forever. With their heads bowed and their eyes closed, if you want to receive that gift, you want to receive Christ as your Savior, you understand that you're lost, you understand that you're undone without God, and on your own, you're going to bust hell wide open. But God, because of His love, paid a price on the cross that you could be saved. You want to receive that gift. I'm going to pray. The words of the prayer, like I said, they're not going to do anything for you. But if the intention of your heart is to receive them and to speak the truth to God, he will receive you. As I pray, you pray this in your heart, in your mind. As I said, if you're online, it doesn't matter. We're talking to God. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I am sorry for all that I've done wrong. I know that you love me. And you died for me on the cross. You paid the price for my sins. I'm asking you right now, by faith, to come into my heart, to forgive me of my sins, and to give me a home in heaven. I know that you have the power to save me, and I'm thanking you for doing it today. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.